Hey there. Welcome to Sobertown Podcast. I want to invite you to visit the wonderful world of sobriety. You can visit our website, which is SobertownPodcast.com. This is where you can find sober tools for your sober toolbox, such as Todd's blog on how to successfully manage alcohol triggers and cravings. We also post the Rewired Podcast and the schedule for Zooms. This is where you can find all these beautiful recovery stories that we all share from our heart of our hero's journey. We also have a Facebook community, Sobertown Facebook. I want to introduce myself. My name is Viv. Some of you know me as Sober I Thrive on the I Am Sober app, which we warmly know as IAS. The I Am Sober app is a daily counter that you can download in your app store. It's easy. It's free. And that's where we all met and we contribute to SobertownPodcast.com. On there, there's a community button where we can create community and connection. In addition, I'm a sober recovery coach certified in Roots of Addiction, the joys of sober recovery, and the neuroscience of addiction. I'm also a certified life coach. All you have to do to take advantage of a complimentary call with me for 30 minutes is send me your email. And you can send this email to viv at soberithrive.org. All it takes to change your life is to take the first step and schedule your confidential, complimentary call. Everyone needs a sober cheerleader. And with the SoberTownPodcast.com, we can help create the sober warrior within you. Good morning and happy Sunday, Ivy Marie. Thank you so much for joining the podcast for Sobertown. I am humbled and honored to be able to share the podcast with our sober community. This lady is known as Ivy Marie on IAS, and she's here to tell us her sober recovery story and her hero's journey through recovery. Hi. Thank you. Thank you for having me here and uh, getting me the opportunity to be able to share my experiences. And hopefully what I say will resonate with others and make them realize that you're not alone and that there is hope. And yep, that's what my agenda is, I guess. Awesome. So take us back to where Ivy, Ivy Marie started. Ivy Marie started right here where I live now in the beautiful West Coast. And I was born to a carpenter and a lady. And unfortunately, the carpenter grew up with generational alcohol issues. So the programming was already there in my father and all my, his brothers, et cetera, et cetera. His father suffered greatly from alcohol abuse to the point my grandfather one time so the story is, he got in a card game and bet his house. 
And in his drunken state and the game actually lost his house. And they came and actually removed the house and took it. My father grew up in a family of eight people. They had nowhere to live. They literally were living in a dirt poor house. I'd be happy to send a picture of that. You'll probably be shocked where 10 people live. Regardless, so the conditioning was already there. And age one, age two, age three, my mother had to deal with all of that and the severe beatings. My mother grew up very rich. It was a happenstance that my mother and father met, and my mother was actually pregnant with my brother at the time and ended up adopting a mother at birth. And my mother and father got married. So enter myself and my sister. So over three years, she endured whatever. They came back to the East Coast, and that's when things started to fall apart. I'm sure my mother had had enough, of course. And so she left, and I would say it would probably be around age three. My mother took my sister and I to an apartment, wherever, And my father decided that in a revengeful moment that he would kidnap my sister and I. So my father took my sister and I away to another town. And back then, there was no Facebook. There was no texting. There was to track somebody other than phoning the police to find out where we were. I mean, it just wasn't there. And my father's side of the family did not communicate with my mother. They, he kept us very shrouded and they were very one-sided to, to protect him because he was the brother. So my mother in the story goes in the distraught stage, tried to commit suicide. So she technically was deemed an unfit mother. So now my sister and I are in custody of a man who is severely riddled alcohol issues. We are ages two and three. And then the, it began where we were now bounced around from family to family to family. In that time, I slightly recall some sexual abuse at a very young age. None of it really came out until much later in years, which just shatters your self-image. It shatters trust. The person that you're entrusted to that's supposed to love you the most is also abusing. So that just sets you up for failure in years to come. As it were, we ended up landing into the household of my aunt and uncle. My aunt already had four children. My uncle was even worse than my father. And he was an extremely violent man under the guise of alcohol. So from the ages of four until probably, I'm going to guess, 11 or 12, I'm actually getting shaky thinking about this. And that's a trauma response. So 
it never really goes away. We just have to remember that we're adults now and we're safe. But the thought of it is, yeah, I'm physically getting. So in our household, every two weeks, my uncle got paid. So the two words in our household that gives me bad feelings, even when I say it today, was my aunt would say, okay, girls, you know what night it is. And we go, yes, anyhow. It's pay night. So pay night for us meant everybody run and hide. And basically, we just went to our rooms to protect ourselves. And we were all very young and we couldn't protect our aunt. So to lay in bed as a small child and know there's nothing you could do. And listen to somebody be be, beat senselessly is hard enough. But when my uncle was done beating her and he was done beating the dog, and in my mind today, I know that this man must have been a very hurt man because what I know is that hurt people hurt. My father never intentionally hurt me. He just had his own issues. That this man, when he was done beating my aunt, beating the dog, he would come upstairs and get my sister and I out of bed and sit us down on the couch. And he would start to berate us, belittle us, and tell us that nobody loved you. And that's why you're here. Nobody wants you. Nobody loves you. So at a very young age, it was instilled in me that it wasn't good enough. And I've spent a lifetime trying to prove to everybody that I am good enough. I recall one incident. It was during the day, which was strange, that my uncle was very drunk and he got me and took my, took me and smashed my head against a countertop. And I was left to be bleeding and just sitting in a chair. And I was very young. I couldn't really defend myself. But I was starting to get the little spunky, sparky meat starting to come out now. Like I'm getting a little tired of this. And I'm about 10, right? So I sat there. I'm of a good age. And back in my childhood, like most people my age, they grew up with what we would deem now corporal punishment. Another cycle of abuse, which wasn't something that I think my aunt ever intended, but it was the bad girl, good girl, bad girl, good girl. To be punished in our house was to get an electrical cord whipped across your legs. And that surely would make your children do what they were supposed to do. If you really had an off day, for whatever reason that might have been, I didn't come in before the lights were came on in the street. I did something that was against the rules, quote unquote. She would tell me to go out to the tree. We have willow trees back east. 
go grab a willow stick so I can whip you. So I had to actually go and get my own form of punishment handed, get whipped, and then sent to bed. In my aunt's guilt in the morning, though, once we were whipped in the morning, my aunt would leave money underneath of our lamp because she felt so guilty. And in the morning, she would say, okay, girls, I left some money under the lamp. It's, you know, under the base of your lamp, there's a hole there. She, so after we were whipped, we would get up in the morning and know that we would get money. Because she felt guilt. And then we'd go spend it at the corner store. You got a lot for 25 cents back then. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. It was a strange cycle. So these negative imprints are starting to be embedded in your head. You can be bad, but you'll be rewarded. Or it's a strange cycle. So moving forward, I never knew my mother. She lived in another town. She lived in another province from what I knew. But we always got gifts that we didn't know. And apparently it was my mom sending us stuff and money. We grew up very, very poor. I grew up on hand-me-downs. I grew up very, very poor. So it was unusual when my sister and I would get something brand new and no one else. But I never knew where that came from. And apparently it was from my mom. So around 11 years old, strangely, my mother and father both came the same year to see us at my aunt's place, which was just totally unusual. And my mother wanted us to come and spend a summer with her. So backing up the truck, probably about age 12, I remember going down the street and for the first time I drank. I was 12 years old. My friend's mom had left whiskey or something and we were drinking it. And I felt good. Alcohol made me laugh. Alcohol made me giddy. And I liked alcohol. I'm like, thanks, alcohol. A new friend. Thanks. I don't feel bad when I'm around you. So we drank what we were 12. We drank, of course, the typical kids. You know, you filled back up with water because no one would ever detect that the diluted alcohol wasn't drank. <laughs> I went home. I went up to my room. I was like, yeah, it feels good. So that was about 12. And then the cycle of abuse just continued and continued. And finally, my aunt had had enough and she decided this is it. I mean, I'm sure she, I don't even know all the stories. And I'm sure that in many times she tried to leave. The systems wasn't the same to support that sort of thing. We grew up in a world of you made your bed and you lie in. And that's what my aunt knew, right? So, and there isn't a support system to take a woman, there wasn't then, there is now, with six kids. Who's going to take in six kids, right? So look, at this time, the older cousins, who really, really were like my siblings, they started leaving the house. And when you 
in that day and age, I can attest to because a lot of my friends got married very, very young. And at 16, they were getting married. Why? Because it was now they could leave a house that was abusive into what they felt was safe. So my older siblings are now leaving and my aunt decided to leave this man, sell her house and go back out west. In that, my sister and I were to come as well. And I've said this before, as an adult, I realized that my sister and I were really a money ticket. And that's what really concerns me a lot sometimes about children's aid and people taking people in. Their motives aren't always the same. And we were a meal ticket. We were a meal ticket. My aunt was living off the backs of my sister and I. So in that transition time, my mother asked for my sister and I to come and stay in the summer. And so we did. It was pretty exciting. We jumped on a train with another, with one of my cousins, 12, 11 and 12 and 16, on a train going across Canada alone. Would you put your 11-year-old on a train? <laughs> we did it. In the cycle or history of abuse, and I believe that this is what happens with most people who suffer a life as we have. In, within that, we end up building very resilient individuals. And our resiliency also creates extremely high-functioning individuals under any circumstance, we can hold so many balls of the air and look like we have all our shit together when really it's just conditioning. We have learned to survive. We have learned to protect. And yeah, I'm on a train at 12 with a 16-year-old as adult supervision. I've seen nothing wrong with that. Four days on a train, three children. We arrive at our mother's house in the summer, and we thought we'd hit Nirvana. My mother had lots of money. I never had a bed with beautiful matching covers and pillow shams and you name it like we were we had brand new bikes we had brand new clothes we had brand new beds why wouldn't a 12 year old want to be there so my mother i believe it was a form of revenge or maybe she was trying to get back part of her life that she couldn't and so she took my sister and brought a lawyer. And apparently at that time, if you said you wanted to be with your parents at the age of 12, it was legal. 
I had no idea what was going to happen to my aunt because of the ramifications of this and or what would be happening to me. We said, yes, of course. We were just bought. Our feelings were bought. And so we ended up staying with our mother. I was in grade eight at the time. Yeah, I remember starting grade eight. And yeah, it didn't get any better. My mother wasn't a drinker and nor was my stepfather, which was very interesting. But what my stepfather was a pedophile and he is still alive today. So salute your bravery and courage. Thank you so much for sharing such deep inner thoughts for our listeners. You're so courageous. Thank you. I just wanted to make this pause and just acknowledge your wisdom and the things that you've said of empowerment. So yeah, it's all just conditioning. When you're really young, you don't know any better. But then you start to get older. And now I'm a, you know, middle school girl. And just backing up, the sexual abuse created a lot of very bad self-image for myself. And I remember wearing knee-high socks till I was 12. Always wanting to cover up yourself, never wanting anybody to look at you because you were afraid any kind of, but on the same side of that, you wanted to be loved. So you're always reaching out for that love and any form of attention or affection as a child, you perceive it as love. Unfortunately, there are adults out there that don't have the same motive. And so young people can get coerced very easily based on that. I'm getting older now, but now I'm starting to put some things together. And my stepfather was a trucker and my mother was very keen to try and mold us together as a family. She wanted me to call him dad. And it never sat right with me because I really did love my father deeply. I had a lot of very good, when my father wasn't drunk, had a lot of very good times. And I need to actually back up the truck just a little bit. There was a time when my father did come back at that Christmas. I wanted to live with my dad so bad. I begged to live with my father. I loved my father so much. I begged to live with my father. I begged. So my sister and I got sent to my father's, which is in the same town. He had met a lady. He was going to be all peachy. You know, we're a family. She had a daughter. So the three of us lived together with my dad and this lady, his girlfriend. Unfortunately, my father was not what I perceived him to be. And he was very drunk a lot. And drunk friends... It was just a bad scene all around. And of course, the sexual abuse started again. And that's where 
you, as a male or female experiencing that at a young age, that's where you start to have major trust issues. The person that you love the most, you can't trust. So now we got body images, we got trust issues, and you know, self-esteem, always feeling like you're not good enough, trying to prove yourself to everybody. You're dying for any scrap of affection, affirmation, anything. You'll take it from anybody. So that ended very badly. And now I'm at my mom's. And it started to kick in. My mother wanted us to be a family. She sent me on the road with them. I'm stuck in the middle of nowhere with a man who's now has his own agenda. By then I was smart enough. And I said, you do that to my mother, you don't do that to me. And I put stop to it. I came back home off the road and my mother started the inquisition of how did it go, blah, blah. And I told her and she was in complete denial and told me that I was wrong. What I did was wrong. And it's my fault. So now... <laughs> The person that you're supposed to love and trust don't believe you. And it became a very heated argument. I remember my mother hitting me because she had her own world. She didn't want this little bubble to burst. And I was bursting your bubble. And this started into a huge, probably the biggest turning point. I was around age 14. I had a major nervous breakdown. They told me, that I have to leave. So my aunt says, we have a saying in the family, I didn't burn the stew, the pot did. And my mother wanted, she was, you know, this rich woman who didn't want any bad images. So her idea was to send me away. She tried once to send me to boarding school. I probably should have said yes. I would have had a great fridge. Background on top of that. But... I ended up going back, but guess where I was going back to? My father. So I remember sitting in a corner of my mother's house knowing I was going to go right back into that abuse. I'm 14 now. I know I'm going to go back into that abuse. It's scary as, you know what? You have no control. You're a child. You're a child. And so I had a nervous breakdown. That was the first time in my life I was separated from my sister and I couldn't protect my sister anymore. I was the big sister. I was always protecting her. And it was probably one of the worst feelings in my life that I couldn't protect her anymore. I went back and lived with my father. It didn't get better. It got worse. And the worst moment in all that, just skipping back a little funny thing, is that I had a very good friend who unfortunately committed suicide. And she had parents that severely abused alcohol. And she was at the same age, was made to clean the house. You have to clean the house. She's 14. She was cleaning the entire house while her parents sat there and drank. It was her job. If she didn't clean the house at 14, on a Friday, she wasn't allowed to go anywhere. So my friend, and I, we made this pact. 
I'll come and help you clean your house if you come and help me clean my house and then we can go out and have fun. So it's funny how you bond in crisis, right? Like you, you just, you make it work and you find some happiness in there. So yeah, so that was our deal. And so we did that for quite a while. But one particular night, and this is a big critical time in my life, my father got belligerent, not belligerently drunk, but just out of his mind drunk. And uh, I must have came in at some point. And my father was a carpenter and he always had a hammer. And that day or night, and it's funny because normally he wasn't a mean drunk. He just would cook a lot of food, pass out, and I'd come home and the house would be, I was afraid it was going to be on fire. And, you know, he wasn't normally a mean drunk, but he was delirious and he came in and he thought I was my mother. And he beat me senselessly, beat me senselessly. And it's funny how we can get over the physical scars, but it's the emotional scars that stay with us our entire life. And that beating didn't stick with me. I could get over that. The mental scars of you're not good enough, nobody loves you, being bullied at school, that's the part that stays with you your entire life. This night, anyways, my father beat me. He choked me. He, I had bruises and you name it on the back of my head. I had choke marks. I was physically. And for whatever reason, I got into the bathroom. We lived in a basement apartment. I crawled out the window. I locked the door, crawled out the window, hoping that he had passed out. Went to a friend's, called Children's Aid. Children's Aid came, documented everything. I'm now in high school documented everything, took pictures, but I said to them, I have to go back because if I don't go back, he's really going to think something's wrong and I, I just need to play it out. But when I went back, I went into my room. I don't know what happened, but anyways, but I had his hammer underneath of my pillow. And I always say, you never know what you're capable of. You never wake up one day and decide you're going to kill somebody. Whether that's drinking and driving, whether it's self-defense, nobody knows what they are capable of until you're in the moment. So, and I'm getting very shaky even talking about this. It's tough, but I believe that there are so many people out there that will resonate with this. And so I put... The hammer right on my pillow. And I had the hammer in my hand. And I thought, if he comes into this room and he starts again, I'll kill him. I will kill him. I'm 14 years old. I will kill him. You self-defense. So the door did open up and he came into my room. But in his delirium, he kept calling me my mother name. I wasn't who, he didn't perceive me as his child. He was delirious. And it was probably from all the homemade pumpkin rum that he used to make. But it floated in my closet one day in my old bedroom. Pumpkin rum. It's really bad alcohol. But in that delirium, sorry, I had to put a light note in there. In that delirium, he kept calling me my mother's name. And then it just psychologically clicked. He doesn't know who I am. 
So I talked to him in a way to bring him out of it. And I got him out of my room. So I went to school the next day. And the teachers recognized that I'd been beaten badly. And I'd also called this aunt again, the sister, his sister. And I said, and I sat down at lunch and she looked at me and she said, what happened? And I said, he beat me. She didn't seem to care. I was shocked. The person that I loved so much, she was just basically like, well, it happened, you know? And I'm like, so from there, I formulated a plan and I left. And I ended up staying with my cousin. So this started a very long recession, concession of moving. So from the time I grew, was born until the time I met my husband, ex-husband now, but I moved 23 times. So I ended up staying at a cousin's place, my aunt's daughter. And my safe place was a bed beside the furnace in a basement with a curtain across and I was probably a meal ticket then too, but at this point, I'm safe. Now I'm safe. And I got away from the abuse. It did, I ended up staying with another cousin, but just that hum of the furnace, even today, the sound of a fan is so soothing for me. But the hum of the furnace, the warmth, the having my own small space to protect myself. Maslow's law, the hierarchy of Maslow's law is safety. Safety is paramount for anybody who's an addict or in an abuse situation or anything. The most important thing that you can say to someone or give them is the gift of safety. So at 14, I was finally safe. But I also had friends and now I wanted to be happy. So I started drinking. And it was just the thing to do. We just went out and had fun. And in the interim, you know, you're just partying and having fun. I remember starting the very first time I ever smoked weed. I was 14 and I was like with friends. I, it was a huge deal back then. It wasn't legal. I'm forbid, you know, but it was exciting because it was illegal, you know. So, oh, look at us, a bunch of rebels. And I remember my one friend's. I had a boyfriend and my friend had a boyfriend. And so we, the four of us hung around and her boyfriend was a minister's son. So it was even more exciting. He was going against his dad's rules, right? We were smoking pot. And a funny little story. Well, I'll tell that one afterwards. But anyway, so I went from that house to another cousin's. I lived with them. And I pretty much was fully responsible for myself after the age of 14. And... I don't know what happened, but I ended up back at my aunt's house in town near, I remember having to walk just high school, it was about a kilometer away, but I ended up living back with her again. And my uncle still had not stopped the abuse. I know it was awful. And I walked in one day and he had her on the floor, pinned to the floor. And by then now I'm a full on teenager. I'm in high school. I'm like, this is not happening ever again. And I spoke out and I let it be known. And no uncertain terms, you'll never do that again when I'm in this house. Never. But now my own drinking starting too, right? I remember almost coming home drunk, passing out in front of a car in the woods. He said, you know, if you take this black beauty, you'll be able to drink even more. 
So I'm like, ah, all right, let's have fun. And so that was my first real blackout. I woke up in front of a car in the middle of the woods. No idea where I was. I probably personally drank a full bottle of vodka, 26er, as they call them here, on my own. I can't believe I'm not brain dead now. <laughs> the body is an amazing thing. It heals itself, given an opportunity. But yeah, that was my first blackout. I was 15. Fortunately, I had good friends. They drugged me home. In my resilience, like any high-functioning, you know, person with issues, I took off all my clothes. I washed, went into my room, got up and went to work. I had a job at a laundry mat. And sure, I reeked of alcohol, got to work. On time, did my job, and then came back. So it was Christmas, I was 15, and I woke up on Christmas Day, and this was my Christmas. And it has to be the shittiest Christmas, I'm going to tell you. But they gave me a box, and they said, and I opened it up, and I, there were sheets, pillowcases, pots and pans. I said, what's this? They said, when you're 16, you're gone. Legally, we don't have to keep you anymore. You're gone. So I was too much going to be 16. I'm like, wow. My aunt paraded me around town. We found an apartment for me. It was, yeah, that was fun. Above a Chinese food store and restaurant. I lived downtown with hardcore people. I was 16. But I was also 16, I had my own apartment. So what do you think happened? All my friends came and partied like rock stars at my house because I had my own apartment. And interesting, though, I always had a job. I never missed school, high functioning. And I graduated early. But my friends would come over and the protection, smart part of me, wouldn't get drunk. Or do drugs. And I only once in a very short period of my time ever did hard drugs. Alcohol was my drug of choice. I knew how I was going to feel. I knew what the reaction would be. So I drank alcohol. And I've said this before, when you're young and beautiful, everything's free. You get whatever you want. I never had to buy anything. I never had to pay for anything. It was always free. And so my friends would come over and acid was huge then. And they would be tripping out. It was slightly amusing, but it was also scary. They'd see my bridge moving across the floor, or they'd be in the hallway doing... <laughs> I watched one friend take a cigarette and throw it down the stairs. I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, wow, can you see all those cigarettes? I'm like, what? And I, I've always had an extremely practical side of me thinking, that's fucked up. <laughs> so I, I always equated... If I was going to try something, I would watch what the person did, see the reaction, and then I would try it. So lots of times I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing that. It just, but I knew what alcohol, I knew how I would feel. I would feel happy. But in that, also with that, though, I had a lot of anger issues from this childhood that I didn't know how to deal with. Or it was deeply embedded in my subconscious. So when I got drunk, I was an angry drunk. Do you see the cycle? My grandfather, my father, myself, my uncle. It's generational. At some point, we have to pop out of this vortex. 
So I was on my own. I'm 16. The funny story is to get alcohol, my friend and I, my best friend who's passed away of MS, we would roll up catnip and then we would go to the streets and sell it to young kids because they think they would think that they were getting high. But, you know, I've always had a very good moral compass. So I never really was getting these people high. I was just making money to be able to feed my own addiction, which was alcohol. And at that time, you don't think it's an addiction. It's just you're having fun in your party. So fast forward, I graduated early at 16 from high school. I couldn't afford to go to college. I ended up coming back out here where I am now. And I started working. I was young. I worked at a hotel. And uh, lots of fun, funny stories there. But a lot of people doing a lot of stuff there. A lot of... And I ended up being with my boss. And they were doing drugs. And I thought, oh, I'm going to try it too. And it wasn't like me to do any hardcore drugs. But I watched them and they were having fun. I'm like, cool. Okay, I'll try it. And I was with someone I felt safe, so I did. And I did these drugs a few times, and I just felt amazing. Like, what the hell? I can see now how quickly people get addicted. It's so quick. And in my infinite wisdom, though, someone asked me again if I wanted, when I was in my apartment, if I wanted to do these drugs. And I said, sure. And I said, I'll be right upstairs. And then all of a sudden, click. I went, nope. I realized how quickly I was getting addicted. And I never did it again. Never. Never. Fortunately for me, but on I see all these fentanyl cases, I see all these map, I see crack, I see how it's just like this demon that just and if you don't have, I don't know, any sense, if you didn't have that survival, I don't know. I can see how you can become a victim to it so easy. Fast forwarding, I said no to that, but I was still drinking. And I mean, now I lost my job. I ended up coming back east, living. I'm trying to think of the the chronological order here. And I ended up living in Toronto with my friend, the one that we used to roll catnip with. I got a job, a decent job. And then I ended up meeting my ex-husband. But it's interestingly, though, I knew my ex-husband. Because it was two cousins married two brothers. We ended up marrying, I ended up marrying my cousin's husband's brother. So it was already in the family. So I got married. I was 23. And I I met him in a bar. We bonded on alcohol. I got a drink him under the table by then now. 100 and, 110 pounds, I could drink my ex-husband under the table. Like, I was a fun girl. I was, you know, let's have fun. We got married. I had my first son at 26. I was a very responsible parent. I didn't drink a lot in those years. I was always a very, I had a good job, a very good job. Again, high functioning, very high functioning. I had a lot of balls in the air. I was studying. I was, you know, doing night school. I was a mother. I'm in, I also, my big passion and still is today is renovating. So we bought our first house. I bought my first house at 23. I started renovating and I was going to make money. In my hindsight, 
Some people go to solve their problems through meditation and doing nothing. And they sit and they quietly meditate. No, I pick up a hammer, put my head down and my ass up and I fix things. But I heard once, when you're always trying to fix things, really, it means you should be fixing yourself. I'm a designer. I love pretty things. I love, I just, I love fixing things. I love making, taking, as my father used to say, and that was one of his big statements, silk purse out of a sow's ear. It makes me feel good to do that, and it still does. So I renovated, did a lot of, but my ex-husband, he always had this little thing about me. He was very controlling, and he used to say, if you're going out with your friends, he never wanted me to go. He didn't want me to be with my sister, my brother. He didn't want me to be with my friends. He was very, very, very controlling. He was married before he had an ex-wife that screwed around on him. So he was very, very tainted. So that was 15 years of an extremely controlling relationship. So he used to say, if you drink, then you have to get up in the morning with the kids. He never supported me, enjoying my friendships. And of course, me being just a little, I'm very, very feisty. I'm like, oh, you think so, do you? So I would go out and get belligerently drunk, blackout drunk. What are my options? Great. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. I, you know, so 15 years of that. But then my ex-husband's alcohol problems were now getting worse because our marriage was starting to fail. I had the high pay paying job. I worked 70 hours a week with three children one and a half, two and a half. Well, when they were babies, actually, I went back to work two weeks after I had my last child. I had a job interview and I said, okay, I'll be there. And I walked in with C-sections, still staples in my stomach. We're so high functioning. I had to pay the bills. I remember them putting me on light duty. I had three children at home and I had to pay the bills. And it was, but my husband and I marriage was really bad now and I ended up buying a house well backing up I would come home and he would be so drunk that the children he would be passed out and the children would be up running around by themselves and the one night I came home and my middle sons cried so hard that he broke all the blood vessels in his face I'm like, okay, this is it. I lost my cool and I just, I had a job. I, we were fighting constantly. And I remember in, it was Y2K and I'm like, I got to make a change. Like, this is 2000. And every time we had a fight, we'd drive by banking and I put $5 in this drive by banking account. I set up a bank account. So at the end of the year, I had $500, bought that much. And I ended up deciding I'm going to buy a house. I bought a house on my own with three children, one and a half, two and a half and eight. And I left, much to his shock, I'm sure I left. I'm 30-something now. Funny when you live alone and nobody's controlling you. You're like, who left the gate open? And I start drinking. Nobody to monitor me. Nobody to control me. Wee! So this is when I remember starting... When I didn't have the kids and I was completely alone, kind of lost, not knowing what to do, I would just drink. 
And I remember driving up to chapters, trying to be real cool and, you know, hiding in the book section. And I'm drunk. I'm drunk at chapters. And then I was drinking more and more. And I'd met a friend. Fortunately, he took care of me. I remember Sunday night, kids coming home. I'm drunk. So interestingly, I leave a man because of his drinking. And now my drinking starts, really starts at around 36. So in that year, I met an, an, another man who I fell madly in love with, and we bonded on alcohol. So I said this in a book, one of my holistic nutritionist books. The lady says about relationships, and often you bond for people like us. We bond on alcohol. And when one person tries to get healthy and we get out of the vortex, the other person's sitting there, Right not knowing what to do, and unless they get out of their vortex. But we initially bonded on alcohol. And he got me into a job. So in the pretty designer job that I had, he got me a job where I made a hardcore construction. The only female in almost every situation, wherever I am. And it made for a very hard 18 years. So I spent the next 18 years self-regulating with alcohol using alcohol as a coping mechanism. Alcohol, when I was lonely, I had no friends, no female friends now. I was completely surrounded by males. My former common law was always gone. And that's something else that I never realized until final, final very important relationship. And I had abandonment issues. My father left me. My mother left me. I know this man I was living with was always leaving me. I didn't understand any of that and realized that it exasperated all my drinking, all my alcohol abuse. I always felt lonely. I had no friends. And now, like, I never felt as lonely as I did in my entire life. And I always had, I grew up in a big family. I had lots of friends in schools. Now, severe depression and loneliness is setting in. And what do you think I did? Self-regulated with alcohol. I had a job where the stress level was insurmountable. I was on shift work. I worked in a highly technical place. I was responsible for very, very important things. And it, I was extreme duress. I used alcohol as my coping mechanism. I would be fine. I could go for weeks without drinking. I was very responsible. I was going to school. I was renovating houses. We had four houses. I was working full time. I was doing shift work, high functioning, high functioning. Can you see the pressure building now? At some point, and I was a mechanic, so we'll just put it at that. At some point, you need a pressure relief valve. You need that valve to open. Pressure relief. Well, what do you think I used to relieve the pressure? I used alcohol. I also used alcohol to numb out all those feelings that I didn't want to deal with or I didn't know how to deal with, maybe. I didn't think I needed to deal with it. <laughs> On top of that, I got addicted to what it's like a 222 called Mercedal. All these are dirty little secrets. Nobody knows it. I drink late at night. Nobody knows I have a pack of Mercedal in my purse to numb out. Nobody knows this. It's just me keeping. It all together, looking amazing, doing amazing things for everybody else while I am totally dying inside. I'm alone. I'm in a relationship that was falling apart. Unfortunately, 
due to an accident he had. And that's another long story. But so in all of this, I have to say the younger me, what happened is I also became a bulimic. So the binge pur purge cycle, another form of abuse. I did that for many, 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 many years until I decided to have a child. And I knew that I couldn't do that anymore if I wanted to be healthy. So interestingly, it was my children that got me out of that one abuse cycle. And what I know now from now, bulimia is a form of self-punishment. And you keep this cycle going over and over and over again. And so I didn't do that for years and years and years. I was good. But now I'm using alcohol as my coping mechanism. I just got to say that ship work makes you completely mental. Ship work should be illegal. But I worked in a plant that had to be monitored 24 inside. So I have three kids I'm taking care of. I have four houses that I'm managing because my ex is away. I'm, you know, going to trade school. And so my job was I worked at a nuclear plant. And this is the tipping point. I had to stand on the face of a reactor one day and we were doing a very high performance job and people came over the headset and said, now, if you open up the wrong tube, it can affect all of Ontario. So for me, standing in the face of that, I knew if I opened up the wrong tube, I would die instantly from radiation. For me, that was a very, very, it was the tipping point yeah. of post-traumatic stress. But you're high functioning. You just do your job. Whether you're a nurse, whether you're a fireman, whether you're whatever it is, you just continue to do your job. So the letters A13 are forever embedded in my mind. Fortunately, I did perform my job. I got down off the pace of the reactor and continued on. But at that moment, that's where the post-traumatic stress kicked in. And it was weeks later. Now I'm, I've left my ex. I'm living in another house, although we're still together. And my best friend from high school said, let's go out together. I drove down to see her. And I, it was a very bad night. I remember saying, we need a plan. We can't drink a drive. And so I got into the car. And we, got, we went out. I got extremely drunk. And it ended very badly. I got my keys. I drove. I should have never been in that car. But, you know, if my good friends have saved me my entire life, I have to say there's some part of me that must give back. It's these people taking care of me. I, on the other hand, wasn't a good person. And I remember waking up in a parking lot and the key was bent in my car. And the story is that I punched her seven times in the head. They got me to another friend's who I woke up in the morning and I was able to get home. I drove home. It was a two-hour drive. Who knows? I got home, but I remember how guilty I felt, how bad I felt, how much I beat myself up, the shame, the guilt. And I remember sitting in my closet, and that was the first time in my life, now I'm in my 40s probably, that I wanted to commit suicide. 
So I picked up a phone of someone that I knew from AA. And she said to me, don't let one bad day define you. Well, I had many bad days, but that was one bad day. And that got me out of, I literally was holed up in my closet. I'm going to kill myself. But my children were also in the house. So between my children and that one statement, I managed to carry on. So this is where I knew something was wrong. And I'm like, okay, is I didn't quit drinking. I had another, I had my best friend come. And I remember now, I only had four drinks and I blacked out. So now the blackouts are starting quicker and quicker and quicker. I didn't quit drinking. But I remember thinking, I wonder about this relationship because I was really struggling. I'm like, is it him or is it me? And I'm trying to remember when I decided to quit the first time. What happened? I went to a party. I never intended to do anything wrong. I was having fun. I'm actually a swing dancer. I love swing dancing. So I was just, I brought a little tiny bit of alcohol with me. And of course, it's a big party. There's a lot of alcohol. Everybody's having fun. And of course, I'm having fun and I'm dancing around. And somebody let go of me and slam. I fell on a concrete pad and I got a concussion, a very bad concussion. I woke up underneath of a pool table with the host cuddled up against me, thinking that surprised I didn't kill myself. I don't know. I managed to pop out of that vortex. I remember going home, but now it's shame, 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 guilt. There's nobody else in this equation but me. No one else, just me. So there's a really good song by Teddy Pendergrass. And it's called, You Can't Hide From Yourself. You can't hide from yourself. Everywhere you go, there you are. So look it up. I was like, ah, crap, here I am. It's me. I'm not liking me right now. So I I Googled and I managed to get on a program for two years. And I didn't drink for two years. I can't say that my life got infinitely better. And this is why. I didn't do the work. I was a dry drunk. I remember still wanting to be the fun girl, but I could prove to everybody I could have fun without alcohol. And I did. I went to more bars than I could check the cat and I ran drink. Very strong, very resilient. But I wasn't healed. I was so angry. I'm so frustrated. I was still in a job that created just, you know, watered those seeds. Oh, yeah. So I didn't drink for two years. Things did get better, obviously. My sleep. Oh, my God. I can't believe how well you sleep when you quit drinking alcohol. And then you start repairing your brain, right? But, of course, I'm still in high-functioning mode. I still can hold all these balls in the air. I'm all that a bag of chips, my sister would say. And I made a wonderful man. I ended up, I ended the 14-year relationship with my common-law, ended it amicably, but realized, you know, we both exasperated each other's issues. And yeah, I look fantastic. 
I met a man who treated me the best I'd ever been treated my entire life. So on our first date, I had a beer. And I had a beer because I felt safe. So after two years, I had a beer. There's only one beer. And then I remember going out with my friends and there was nothing to drink. They didn't have any, they didn't, there was a soda water. Yeah. And I'm not a pop drinker. And I'm like, you Stop. know what, I'm just gonna have a beer. It was fine the last time I got a beer. My friends look at me, she goes, you quit drinking, why are you having a beer? And I'm like, you know, just, I'm just, I'm tired of just, you know, not feeling like I fit in. I just want a beer. So I had a beer, danced the night away, met a fun cry, whatever. And anyways, I, was in this two year, a year and a half relationship with this man who treated me like gold. I'd never been treated like that before. And it was about a year and a half in. He decides that he's going to go away with his son for 55 days. And for my first time in my life, I had a panic attack. Never had a panic attack in my entire life. Never, never. And I'm, what I know now is that what happened is that he triggered my abandonment issues. It was the most scariest thing on the entire planet. And if you don't understand people have panic attacks, they're real. And you have to be compassionate about it because it's a trigger for the past negative imprint in your brain. So that was my first panic attack. He did go away. He came back. Trying to remember. It ended. So I'm a strong proponent of when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. So this man came into my life that treated me like gold. I was madly in love, madly in love. I thought, you finally got your stuff together. You've achieved a great job. You own your own house outright. I've worked so hard about the man of my dreams. What more can a girl ask for other than healthy children? I had great friends at the time. They couldn't get any better. And then. It ended. My drinking just got worse. I was very distraught. I had now moved to another house because I was renovating, because I had big plans. I'm quite a romantic. Quite a romantic. Oh, it's going to be beautiful. We're going to have family parties and dinners. And I had the most gorgeous home you could ever imagine. It was huge. It was big. Look at me. Yeah. I laid in my bed at minus 22. The furnace went out. I cried my eyes out. I was alone. And it took me six months to get over that relationship. And I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me until I typed in abandonment issues, or relationship anxiety. And four attachment styles came up. And the one attachment style that came up was about abandonment issues. This attachment style and all the chips started falling in and this started a four-year journey of healing i can say it was easy because it wasn't but i was also taking my holistic registered nutritionist and so it was like ten thousand worth dollars worth of free therapy in the interim my mother also died she left me twenty five thousand dollars i thought well she created these problems i'm gonna spend her 25 grand in therapy <laughs> I didn't work. I stayed away from my job. I sat every day on my back deck listening to the birds. And I'm like, and after 
I was, but I was still jonesing from this relationship and I couldn't figure out why. I never happened to me before. I realized that I was addicted as well to this man. And I read once that we're all addicts. It's just to a different degree. So some people use alcohol. Some people use drugs. Some people gamble. It's an addiction that fills a need. It's a coping mechanism. Until you understand that, really, 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 really get deep and get real with yourself. So I spent a lot of time doing personal healing. My, I call it my dark night of the soul. It's on four years, the dark night of the soul. And, but I still hadn't quit drinking. Imagine that. So I still had a stressful job. I was still drinking. And this is one of the things that I say about post-traumatic stress or people in the industry that I was in. So I would get a layoff and it was normal for me to get laid off from big, high, intense projects. So we have intensity. We have no balance in our life. We have no imbalance. It's full tilt or stop, full tilt or stop, full so as soon as I get laid off, the first thing I do is go to the liquor store, buy a six-pack, 10 o'clock in the morning, boom, drink till I passed out. That was my coping mechanism. I needed to decompress. Alcohol made me decompress. And I continued that cycle for a long time, all while trying to do the self-healing, self-help, working. And then the pandemic hit. <laughs> Imagine that. Like everybody, we all had probably major freakout sessions. And mine was to decide to sell every single thing I owned and move. Where? Back to where I am now. So I had, I don't know if it was a meltdown or what it was. <laughs> we probably all had major meltdowns. And I sold everything, almost everything that I owned from this huge house. And I drove across Canada and in, in that. So now we're leading up to pretty much where I am now. I'm... It, yeah, this was two and a half years ago. During, I moved during a pandemic. I drove across Canada. I hadn't quit drinking. I was still drinking. But in that process, I, in my mind, I said, I'm not taking the old me with me. That's it. I'm done. The new me is going to be out west. That was my plan anyway. And I had a plan. And it fell completely flat. And what I did is just kept bonding with the same people. Over the same cycle, I just kept meeting people that liked to drink, people that did hardcore drugs. No, I drank, but I didn't do that. But, and I, but I never liked these people. But it, I needed it. So I was told you always go back to what you're familiar to. It's your familiarity. It's like you marry a man because he's familiar. You're, you understand that and it's your normal. So being with people was my norm. Being people that drink was my normal. So I'd start bonding with these people, but I'm like, hey, just don't like this. That's not right. So I'm still in the same job, and now I'm getting sent away. And this severe, deep, deep loneliness is now kicking in. It's a pandemic. I'm not alone, literally, in these feelings. You know, three quarters of the world who didn't have their family. I left my family behind. I left my friends behind. They all feel the same way. But I'm, you know, I am a very social person. I need people. I'm sorry, all you people out there, I need you. <laughs> I don't know if you need me, but I need to need you. 
We need you. So I didn't have those people, so I went out of the Look at that. And I love drinking alone. Just going to own it. I love drinking alone. Ah, uh, yeah. But you shouldn't drink alone and text. And I had met somebody when I came out here that I was actually felt quite in love with. Also, the other drug of choice for me is probably love. Love is my drug. Now I'm learning to love myself. Really am. I'm kind of awesome. Just going to say. <laughs> Very awesome. Very awesome. But the person that I actually really did feel, I mean, I didn't say it at the time, but now I know it, that I, I did love this person. I was still angry. So I text angry things. And this is kind of like the setup for the catalyst for the final straw. So between that and I went to a job, I was in a remote area. Again, I'm pretty much on my own. The very last job that I went to, it was high, you know, strong hours, heavy duty hours. We're stuck in the middle of nowhere. There's nowhere to go but my room. And I'm a very responsible adult. I did not drink entire job because I also know that just at work, it leads to a lot of problems when you're the only female and by males. So I was very careful about that. So the job ended. I asked for a layoff and I thought, yay, I'm going to go get two beers and I'm going to drink. It was my reward for working hard. I remember hearing Max's husband, I work hard. I deserve a drink. He used to say that to me over and over. So, you know, that was imprinted in my mind too. I mean, that's just the ideology of the way I grew up. You work hard, you deserve it. You work hard, you deserve it. So I, in my infinite wisdom, I packed everything the night before, packed all my stuff up, put it in my truck, and I drove around. I had the most glorious, wonderful day. It's actually really nice. I like doing these things called walkabouts. So I go to a new place. I take pictures. I love photography. And I did a walkabout. And I just loved this little town. It was so pretty. And I got my two bears. And I came back to the camp. And there was a table full of men. And they said, hey, come and sit down. Have a couple of beers with us. And I'm like, yeah, sure. So then I drank the two beers. Here, have another beer. Ah, all right, have another, have another. We don't even need to tell you what happened after that. I woke up, not sure where I was. Blood around me. Not sure where my clothes were. And, uh, I finally crossed moral boundaries, my own personal moral boundaries. And I got up. I managed to get back to my own room. I thought I got to get out of here. And I got out and I boarded. I started a six-hour journey to get back home. Still inebriated. But I remember counting the hours between the wait times. I was on a ferry thinking, Okay, if I'm this this much time, I'm gonna get sober. So now I started the hours. And interestingly, the I W N D Y T. I'm like, what does that mean? I never I 
on the app. I'm like, what does that mean? I never could figure it out. And it took me a long time. Like I'm bright, but sometimes I'm a little daft. So I start counting the hours. And I'd had two years of sobriety before. So I knew now it's time to just one minute at a time, one hour at a time, one day at a time. That kind of emotional talking about that. Beautiful. But past sobriety tools, although I was a dry drunk, I did get some good tools. And I dug deep down, even in my inebriated state, and start, I took out my toolbox. And funny enough, I'm a mechanic, so I actually own toolboxes. And so I value a good toolbox. And in my toolbox was words with friends. That takes away the moment trigger. I managed to make it home after a six-hour drive. I was in extreme pain. I had no desire. As I laid in my room alone in my townhouse, I had the biggest epiphany in my alcohol journey. My father died of the delirium tremens, trying to get sober at the exact same age as I was then. So click everybody has their what do they say the the low place or whatever the rock bottom i hit it imagine it hard if i continue to drink i will die that's it i'll be dead just like my father at the exact same age so i got through so i'm laying in bed because i knew one of my tools was counters. I need a counter. I'm on Google. Alcohol counters. <laughs> what pops up? Hey, an hour into the story. I-A-S. Sobriety counters. So I download that sucker. And I'm like, okay, we're going to start counting the days. Self, I'm monitoring. It's very, I mean, you can sit and blame they play the blame game and you can be in denial for and then finally it hits you, it gets real. And the counter is just between it's like Teddy Pendergrass, wherever you go, there you are. And the counter is just it's just you and the counter. Nobody on that app is counting for you. It's just you and the counter. So every day I opened up my counter and I did my pledge. And I pledged and the counter, I pledged and the counter, and I pledged and accounted. And about nine later I finally came on the app. Said my little piece. I had a total week of horrible pain. There was no going back for this alcohol thing. That monster, I need to put it to bed. Not saying the triggers don't go away because they certainly do. Even telling my story today, you know, I feel the vibration, the energy, the pain. But now I'm, one of the things I've learned is that I'm an adult now. And I'm 100% responsible for my own choices. Perfect line out of the book, Subtle Art of Not Getting a Fuck by Mark Manson. I'm 100% responsible for my own choices. You can't blame anybody. You get off, you have to get off of the blame and denial rung of the ladder. Yeah. And then you have to start being accountable. So I literally counted every day. And one of the most incredibly glorious things about quitting drinking, and now here's the fun part. Let's get to the fun part. Enough of the sad sack. The incredibly wonderful thing about drinking 
is that a week goes by and you get to celebrate. Yeah, you go on the app. Look at me, seven days. Yeah, and everybody claps for you. And yet you, you've got your own virtual cheering section. <laughs> it's awesome. So I got the cheering section. So seven days. So now you get, you're getting the milestones. I'll tell you, the first day isn't always the hardest because for me, I just, I was disgusted. I was shamed. I was guilt. I'm like, I have no desire to drink. For other people, the first day might be the hardest day of their life. For me, it was the easiest. Seven days goes by. You're getting some, you know, you're getting some momentum. By day, it was day 11. I got it. I got to keep a log. I keep all my stories. I read my stories. Day 11, I slept. I slept the most beautiful sleep I have had in years. I slept for 11 hours. I woke up a brand new person. Oh my God, I was so happy. Now on my pink cloud. I'm just going to tell you people that success builds success. Day one, day three, day seven, day nine, day 11. Boom. Tipping point. I got sleep. I got rest. I'm getting clean. I'm getting all this out of my body. So yeah, you just get, so now though, you got to do your work, right? I'm, I'm not in any other program. I had my history with Women for Sobriety, which is an online app. It does keep you, there's a little bit of anonymity, which is great to get you started, but you're still isolating and you need to talk to people. You need a support group for some people that's AA and that works for them. For me, it doesn't work. And I'm a little bit of a, I think I can do it all. So sometimes I need to smart myself up. <laughs> I don't reach out to people enough. I'm too tough. Oh, 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 yeah. We had this conversation before, I think. Ah, asking for help. I have a great job. I have, I own my own house. You know, I'm... God, a great bike, blah, blah, blah. So why would I ask anybody to help? Get real. Look at me. I got it, I got it all together. Which is a total load of crap. <laughs> the, the outside perception, right? So I'm still trying to do everything alone and on my own. So anyways, I managed to, I, I have never drank since that day. I still had the same job. So if you want to heal, which I have learned, unfortunately, you got to make some hard, cold decisions. And I think the biggest and most important decision that I've come to realize, maybe even people that are sober now still don't really get it and they still struggle and they're still fighting. And I feel for those people, but at the end of the day, you got to make sobriety your number one priority. If you never want to go back, your sobriety is it. Not your children, not your job, not your husband, not your boyfriend, nobody. Sobriety is your number one priority. If you want your life to get better, it is your number one priority. Do I sound like repeating myself? Yes. But I find that, you know, it kicked in. <clears throat> and now it's time to remove the negative and toxic people from my life. I thought I did that when I moved away, but all I did was run away. And my oldest son pointed out to me, you realize, mom, you're just running. I'm like, how did you get so smart? <laughs> oh, boy. It's like, oh, that hurt. And sting. He's right. 
but we don't recognize it. We just keep trying to create, we start reinventing. We're going to reinvent and not really deal with what's wrong. It's hard to deal with your shit. I'm just saying it's not easy. And I think we've had this conversation. So now in your sobriety, what happens is that because you're so clean, everything clean, it's fantastic because you have an incredible amount of clarity that comes to you about everything, good or bad. But because you're so clean, now you're like a brand new baby. You're raw. Your sensitivity levels are... And you've got to deal with all these things that are coming at you. And me, I'm like, oh, I can handle this. I got this. You know, the hardcore construction worker. I don't need anybody. <laughs> I am wrong. So at some point, you got to reach out. If it's one person, find that confidant. Find that person. Stop, iso- stop isolating yourself. I know it's pure protection. You're just protecting yourself. It's what you're conditioned, what you've known. But now you have to, you're raw and you're vulnerable. But invulnerability is when you start getting, making real connections with people. You start, that's where the love starts pouring in. Yeah. So we had this little conversation about my name, Ivy. And I wanted to share this with you. It was day three of my sobriety journey. Day three. I'm in pain. I'm sitting on my front porch in the sledding, just basking in the sunlight. I needed sun. I'm healing now, you know. It just felt good. The warmth felt good. And I had a townhouse and there was eight steps. And I went to the little, I get to lean over the edge of the townhouse porch, watch everybody coming and going. And I looked down, and there was this, there's this stone wall in front of it. And I looked down, and then there's this little plant. And, oh, that's interesting. So I have a plant there. So I go down my eight steps, and I pick it up. And it's just a sprig. This is like one little shoot of this little plant in this little container. And it said, hi. I'm Ivy. Please save me. There's signs from the universe, right? When So I took the plant in and like the story in 28 and a half weeks in that movie. The guy's crying in the flowers to work. I needed to save my plan and I took care of my plan. I can never get it. No lover. I can never get, you know, have a relationship. He's crying. He wants his plant. <laughs> so I thought. God damn, I'm going to take care of this plant. And so Ivy is still with me tonight. And I feel like I'm Ivy. And as my plant grows, so do I. So Marie is my middle name. So that's why I'm Ivy Marie on the app. And I'm very happy to report that I've not killed that plant. And the plant is beautiful and it's grow and it's healthy and it's in sunshine and you know i've repotted it a few times you know i want that sucker to live (laughs) but it's kind of like this alter ego of me you know the plant is me and the more i take care of the plant and the more i take care of myself so it's a reflection of my growth and it's not easy don't know it's not easy and 
you got to do the work. You got to get real with yourself. What is improved? The biggest thing said before is that we have to remove the toxic things that we're creating this environment to begin with. I mean, we start to heal, we become raw, but now we start to understand. And I've written stories. I used to be a reporter in my past life. So I love to write, I love to take photography, you're very creative. And I, in a story that I wrote, said basically, you just have to get rid of every toxic thing in your life if you want to heal. And I said, in, in that journey, you're probably going to piss a lot of people off. This is friends, this is family, and you're going to feel very alone for a while. Unless you have some really good friends, which I do, and I'm fortunately very, very grateful for all the people. But the biggest person I'm grateful for, and I'll just say it, is my sister. I've probably driven her completely crazy. I have dumped on her so many times that poor girl, she shut me down. But as I get better, you know, obviously my relationships get better. Yeah, so the biggest turning point... I will say, though, in all of my journey is I decided to I woke up February 14th. I went down to my computer. I sat down and I typed five sentences. And after 18 years, I said, I quit. And I quit a job that paid me over $100,000 a year. I made a lot of money. I had carte blanche freedom. I could work when I wanted to. I could be off when I wanted to. I could take trips. I could take holidays. I could buy all the expensive gifts. And uh, I quit because it was my biggest source of stress. It was going to kill me. That job was going to kill me. And I did. I quit. And it's scary. <laughs> it's scary. Uh, but the freedom, the freedom. Now, I'm not saying everybody just needs to quit, but maybe I should get a little plan. I fortunately had set myself up financially that I was able to do that. But it's due to all the hard work in the past. But if you want to get healthy and you want to protect your sobriety, you have to do whatever it takes. And for me, it was quitting my job. I've gone back to doing a job that I love. No, I did get laid off from it, but I'm, it's amazing how incredible we are, us strong, resilient people, high-functioning. <laughs> but now high-functioning with clarity. And I'm right back to doing the job that I love. I'm working for myself. I've set goals. I'm very goal-orientated. I've set goals. I'm making money. I'm fine. I'm, I'm surviving. I still have to really protect my environment and my energy. And we, you also, there's going to be hiccups. We're not perfect. There's going to be hiccups. Just... I think maintaining balance, trying to maintain your balance, whether you do it through yoga. One of my other biggest things throughout, for a very long time, when I quit, or when I started my four-year journey, A Dark Night of the Soul, Buddhism for me is a big thing. We all meditate in a different way. I don't necessarily sit on a pillow, but one of the things I do is I sit on the edge of my bed. I go to the same place every single day. I cross my legs, or when I need to, I shut down the noise and I'll say, okay, universe, bring me to what I need. And so through that, I let myself, I trust my gut. I trust my intuition. It gets easier and easier. It just, it does. You can shut down the noise so quickly when you just start to listen to your gut. I have like a little visual for anybody out there. So if you divide your body in half and 
if you below your sternum, if something you're experiencing isn't feeling good and it feels like it's, it feels heavy down below on the bottom half of your body, if it's not light, it's not right. So once you learn to start trusting your own intuition and your own instinct or whatever, and start looking for the good energy and the lightness, you would be shocked at how quickly, boom, 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 things start flowing. And when things start flowing and that energy, you're just building uh, as one of the Zoom meetings. I'm starting to go to Zoom meetings. So I've reached out for help. <laughs> but upward spiral, you're creating an upward spiral and a downward spiral. But it all has to do with you. Nobody out there is up there holding your hand. I'll walk you through this journey. Come on. Nope, it ain't happening. Sorry, I burst your bubble, but it ain't happening. It's you and only you. By yourself. But I'm a firm believer, and I, I read a lot of feng shui. I read a lot of, but it's all about your energy. Surrounding yourself with the right energy. And in my year of sobriety, the first year of sobriety, like you're just, you're just like, ah, uh, oh, I don't know. You're like a newborn baby. You're kicking and you're screaming and you want, you want, but you're not getting that. You know, you're a fish underwater. You don't jive with people anymore. You're like, ah, who am I? You're trying to find yourself. But what I've realized is the more I align myself with healthy people, and that's my big word is healthy people, healthy environments, success builds success. I'm still not 100%, but I, even as the, of this weekend, Things are just starting to drop in for me. Things are dropping in the last couple of months. It just, it drops in faster and faster, gets better and better. And it's just like all the time that we spent bastardizing ourselves in anger and denial and shame and guilt, it just, it goes away. It doesn't go away 100%, but when you're, now, on the other side or in the light, things is happening so much quicker for you. Things is dropping. I have diaries and journals from like four years ago, and I can feel the pain in every. And then, but I set goals. I set, I shouldn't say goals. I set my intentions. I'm the weirdo out there with the light. And I'm the weirdo out there under the full moon with your, you know, your candle. <laughs> I'm the weirdo. <laughs> Writing my journal, setting my intentions, and they're all happening. They're happening. My intentions are happening. And I set my intentions. I forget about them. And I just put them away. And then I pick them up the next month. I'm like, oh, well, look at there. Well, look at there. Check, check, check. It does get better. Beautiful. It does get better. And it gets faster and faster. And it just, it starts dropping in and it's fantastic. It's not perfect. And I stopped running. You got to stop running. I love this. I think that your recovery story is going to resonate with thousands and thousands of people around the world. I wanted to ask you, a question. And the question that I always ask is, 
what would be the words of wisdom that you could impart to someone that is early on in their sober journey? What is one thing that you would like for them to take away from your recovery story? I think the first thing is that I'd like to plant the seed in the person on day zero. Is that you were born perfect, whole, and complete. Let's get back there. You can get back there. And you're also 100% responsible for your own choices. If you can just read that statement out loud to yourself, I think it's a pivotal, pivotal statement. You stop making excuses. You'll stop blaming. And... On day zero, as I'd already said about day zero can often really, really suck. And I've had many day zeros. But as my friend said, don't let one bad day define you. Sure, you might have had several bad days, but you're worth it. You were born for patrol to complete. You can get back there. I think that's probably my major takeaway. I think that's so beautiful. And I just wanted to add the <clears throat> metaphor that Are I just crying. <laughs> I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> I love it. I just that wanted I... to say, too, in my sobriety and you know, I was born perfect, whole, complete, and I was born this soft, kind, caring, compassionate girl. And I always loved being a girl. And I was, you know, in this spot where I became this hard. And so my sobriety, what it's given me is I'm chipping off all the hard corners and all the softness is coming back out again. And as I said before, I know I'm seeing myself this strong desire to weave baskets. <laughs> And I'm, I'm bringing the girl back. I'm bringing her home. I'm coming home to me. And I love it. Uh, we love you. Thank you. A <laughs> couple of saps. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. This is beautiful. I know that this is going to bring so much healing to so many people. I know that it's been brought so much healing to my life. So I want to thank you for your story. It's one of victory and resilience and kindness and authenticity and courage. I'm so, not pushing over though. Don't I think sure. So I just want to thank you so much. And yeah, we're Ivy Marie is on I Am Sober app, and you'll be seeing her around. Like she said, she's pops up in and out over zoom so yeah this is a beautiful more and more i'm really enjoying it i love that platform i gotta say anybody that's does who is afraid to go on there i'm really loving it because i find almost all the meetings well i mean i've only got two but still i've done other meetings and i find that it doesn't 
hearken on the past. It solves now problems. And people get to work through those now problems. They're real life problems. They're real people, you know, but not focusing on yesterday. They're all, you're focusing on the future. This is what I really love. And I love the app as well because people might be having a bad day and they can just throw it out there, whether they're just getting it off their chest. It's almost, for me, it's like an online journal. I'm sorry to all the people that had to read some of the stories that were boring, but it's just, we need an outlet. And I have a little picture I put up on IS. People begin to heal when they're heard. So just being able to purge those feelings out, it's the pressure relief valve. It's getting it out. But when you're getting it out, even as of late, somebody said something in a meeting and I was just like, oh, oh God, I feel that. I feel that, you know, but I instantly resonated with it and it helped me. So, you know, you're supporting each other and helping each other. And I'm really loving that for that. It's, it's, yeah, you got a community. Oh, yes. And also I wanted to thank Mary Hummingbird for bringing us there. Yeah. She's the one who got us connected. I reached out to her and probably one of my insanity moments or we started talking about recovery point two oh, and that's where we are today. And after the first year, what happens after the first year? Like the first year, you're like a fish out of water, you're a newborn baby. And like, yeah. But then finally you settle down and then you're like, okay, what now? And uh, then you start dealing with it. And yeah, Mary and I have been bouncing back and forth and that led me to you. And thank oh. you, Mary. Thank you, Mary. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for everybody that listened at silvertownpodcast.com is our site and thank you again ivy marie for sharing your story thank you